Who do you want to be as a leader? What are the blind spots you're missing? If you had a magic wand and you could change anything about your workplace, what would you do with it? These are the kinds of questions we explore on Inspirational Leadership. I'm your host, Kristen Harcourt. I'm a keynote speaker, emotional intelligence coach, and leadership trainer who partners with executives and emerging leaders who want to achieve extraordinary results for themselves and their organizations. You're in the right place if you're ready to cultivate the self-awareness to be the leader you were born to be. Let's go on this journey together. Welcome to Inspirational Leadership. I'm your host, Kristen Harcourt, and we have another wonderful guest. And this is a repeat guest. So my guest, we got to speak, I feel like it's probably been around 18, 12 to 18 months. No, it must be more than that because we didn't have any pandemic going on. So probably around two years ago. And I'm bringing her back on the show because she has a new book and I really want to tell you all about it. So let me first start off by introducing you to her. Today, I will be speaking with Heather Younger, who is a best-selling author, international speaker, consultant, adjunct organizational leadership professor, and facilitator who has earned her reputation as the employee whisperer. She's a champion for positive change in workplaces, communities, and our world at large, and she's just released her new book, the, uh, the, the arts of caring leadership. And for anybody who's watching on video, since we have this video and audio, I'm holding it up for you right now. Love the book. And I was just telling Heather, as we were talking before we went on to the podcast, that the book is so good that I could have a podcast conversation for every single chapter of the book. Welcome to the show, Heather. Thank you so much for having me. I'm always excited to be with you. <laughs> Yes. And we, it's always hard for it to end because we just are so, so super passionate and excited about this work, this mission and, and how it can change workplaces and the world in such a profound way. Mm, it's so true. Yeah. I love it. Let, let's get to it. Let's get, to <laughs> let's it. get in it. Let's get to it. And I think it's a, a great starting point because even just saying caring leadership, some people are going to say, well, what do you mean by that? What is caring leadership? So start off by telling us, Heather, when you start, when you're talking about caring leadership, what does that mean? Well, it's, it's really when uh, leaders show, like take daily actions to show concern and kindness for those they lead. Um, it is, it's the behaviors that we are highlighting. It's the action that we're highlighting, not just in what we think we are, you know, this kind of nebulous, squishy concept of, oh, I care. Well, do you really? Um, in your actions. And that's really what we're trying to get to here is the, is the day-to-day actions that we're taking. Yeah. And, and I think even just to give i I'm going to give you a chance to talk a little bit about your background, but one of the things that's even jumping out at me when you were talking about with doing employee surveys and I mean, how many was it you said, like you've seen 20,000 employee surveys in your, in, in, in the work that you've done. Is that right? Yeah. It's actually like, since then, it's probably, it's, we're more like close to 30 now. Um, we do, so the work we do at Employee Fanatics is all about helping create cultures of listening. So it's listening sessions where we do rounds with different employees, maybe ones that are more diverse or the marginalized groups or just employees in general on topics that the organization is trying to get to the bottom of, or we do that, we help aggregate all the survey data. So we're reading all these comments um, that, that most organizations don't ever look at. That's why they hire us because they want to find out what's being said in the comments. And if there's thousands and thousands of them, nobody really has time for that, but that's what we do. We actually help them make sense of that data and then help to um, create kind of a strategy or a plan to move forward with the data they got. So. 
So, and I think that's a great place to, to start because you being able to see 30,000 surveys that you're going to definitely see some trends and some consistencies. And when it comes to leadership and humanizing the workplace, which you and I are both passionate about, what are some of the consistent patterns feedback that you tend to see? Well, I mean, the biggest thing is it's obvious that there's a, like a lack of connection so that, that, that leaders aren't taking the time to connect, aren't taking the time to connect to find out what their people want to do as far as career path, where do they want to go, um, helping them get there and it's not leaving them on their own to figure out how they're going to maneuver in the organization to get where they want to go. Um, you know, showing that the idea of having a lack of appreciation, like just working a whole lot and not getting hardly any appreciation for doing that work. And there's a statistic out there that's like 76% of the employees would leave their organization for one that actually shows value or shows them that they appreciate them. I just think that's a, a tr- tremendous number. It really says to me, like, we need to be investing a whole bunch of recognition in our time and our resources to, to make sure we're showing appreciation for people. Yeah, actually, actually, I think there was one it was on um, empathy was speaking to that it might have been the same survey that we were looking at and it was around 2000 uh, leaders anywhere from CEOs, HR leaders and individual contributors and the percentages were so high like just to show me some that you care about me show me some appreciation I will stay at your organization and I will even actually take a little bit less pay before going to another place to be able to stay at a company like that because there's so much loyalty that gets built in that. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you, again, when you know someone's investing in you, you're willing to invest in it. So you're willing to stick with it if it's sticking with you. And I think that's, it's just critical. And I've seen it like personally as a leader, I, I was going into a little bit of my background. I was at a place, I was in the middle of a merger and I re I looked around for like the multiple time being in different organizations and realized like no one was paying attention to what was happening with the people, how their emotional state was, how much concern and fear they had during the merger. No one was communicating with them. And so, uh, and listening. And so I thought, and so I was, and I thought we put this group together. It was all these different companies coming together and everybody started, the walls started to break down, trust started to build up. People's fears started to kind of, it wasn't, didn't completely go away because we're still in the middle of a merger, but um, it was a lot, it was lessened a lot. And I think the key in that regard is I realized that someone has got to be the bridge. Someone's got to listen to the, to the people who are driving the business forward and then give what they hear in a, in a way to the people in the way they need it in the C-suite, for example, where they can make smart decisions for the business. And that's how employee fanatics got started. It's just like someone needed to be the voice. So the employee fanatic side is kind of double-sided. It's you will create employee fanatics by doing the things that, uh, that you know, we will help you uncover. If you do these things, you'll create employee fanatics. And then obviously the other way is, is that um, then you will also um, be fanatical in your efforts towards your employees. And so basically doing all these things create this culture that's like, uh, uh, like a, like died, uh, can you think of the word for it? <laughs> Dominoes. Yes. And that will just kind of, everything just kind of moves in the direction you want to go. And the X, the IX part of the fanatics is all about data because, you know, one thing you don't want to do, go to a C-suite and talk about feelings. So we don't, we don't do that. Um, we do that in the data that's revealed and the qualitative metrics that come out from the comments, but it's done in an aggregated way. So it feels, it feels more quantitative. It sounds funny to say that we kind of turn something that's qualitative into quantitative-ish stuff. And it makes people who need to receive it that way, receive it the right way. 
Yeah, and I think that's that can be one of the challenges with this work when we start to think about uh, building a caring, with having caring leaders and, and building organizations that take that kind of mindset is there as a belief, well, this stuff is soft and I don't know the ROI on it. And it's funny, and I, I'm doing this quite deliberately. I, I'm going to start on the ROI first, and then we're going to get into actually talking about what this looks like. Um, Cause you, you talked about this in, in the book and also you have an amazing podcast, which is, which is all talking about leadership with hearts. And in that podcast, you've talked to many leaders uh, from the CEOs, from the HR leaders throughout organizations globally, and they can show you that there's a huge return on investment. So, so share me, let's start there, like share with me some of the results that you can show in that tangible way that, so we can say that, yeah, there's metrics to support this, the yeah. ROI of having caring leadership. Yeah, it's so funny because I think of all, every time I think of ROI, I think of Gary Ridge of the WD-40 company who I highlight in there. And I highlight him in a big way because his story is pretty powerful. And every time I talk to him, I'm completely uh, validated in the fact that I highlighted him, but like re-energized to know that he's a leader in this space and that he's also trying to spread how other CEOs of big uh, global publicly traded companies can actually show up with more heart. So his story is something like this. He um, was kind of operating the CEO, like almost like looking at the numbers, like they were, you know, publicly traded. So it's like looking at the stock price and that was driving him more. And at some point there was some, there was like a turning point for him where he he decides he's going to go and like get a degree. He goes and gets a degree in organizational leadership um, at the school and the teachers there are amazing, the professors. And they it really impart upon him the importance of this people first idea. And he really starts to kind of um, just become a, kind of a, a disciple of this idea of leadership through people, uh, making sure that you, I forgot what he says. There's like certain sayings that he says in his Aussie accent, but it's this idea of like taking care of people in your care, making sure that you take care of them. The people that are in your care is the focus. And so he really switched over from this more kind of traditional way of leading to this idea of now he goes down in the mornings when he's in the office, he goes down and he says hi to people by first name as they're coming in through the front door. And this is, like I said, a billion dollar company. The numbers when he decided to make this transition, so it was like over maybe like a 10 year period, they went from like multiple hundreds of millions, let's just say, to like $2.2 billion market cap, again, a publicly traded company. And he directly thinks is correlated to the culture. He calls the people that are in his care, his tribe. And they have like a 93 to 95% um, employee engagement rate that stays consistent year over year. Um, and they track it. And so I love it because Yes, it's emotions and yes, it's people. And he's such a, if you ever meet him, he's like, oh, he's so warm. But they track it. There are metrics they have that they look on their C-suite dashboard and he keeps at the top of the list. And he, he makes sure that that happens. And the people are willing to go over and above to achieve all their goals for this blue can, WD-40 can, like they spray on doors, right? It's a mission for them because he put it there like that. So it's just amazing. And there's a couple, I mean, there's other one that's big. There's a smaller companies that I highlight there. That also, again, it was a mindset shift on the on the on the, the part of the CEO or the head of that division or whatever. And when they change their mind, they change their behaviors. Boom! All of the results started to change, and it made them like the top of this and the top of that, and the best place to work. And it's kind of, it's actually crazy how like clockwork how this works. Yeah. So this is why the work I do and you do is all about like focus on leaders because we get more organizational results by focusing on those leaders. So. Yeah, you know, and it's so funny, Heather, as you're talking about it right now, what, what strikes me is, and I, I've, I've done this when I've worked with a lot of the leaders too, because I tend to work with high achievers. 
and they recognize it's sometimes to their detriment, right? That they're working so hard and pushing, pushing, pushing that they can get burnt out. They're not holding boundaries, yep. affects their relationships with family and all of that kind of stuff. And, and recognizing yep. that they're, they're not really living their best life because they're too far over on the spectrum on one side, right? It's, so it's kind of getting them a little bit. And I'm careful to say about saying balance because it's never balanced, but a little bit more integrated, a little bit more harmony. And one of the the, the barriers. And when I hear all the time, it's almost like they have this belief that if they were to take their foot off the pedal a little bit, if they were going to have a little bit more self-compassion for themselves and compassion for others, that somehow is going to go all the way to the other side, that they're going to be lazy. They're never going to get anything done. There's not <laughs> going to be productivity. And I wonder, as we're thinking out loud, there might be some CEOs that almost feel like, well, if we start to be too much about the human stuff, too much about um, the people and the compassion, all that kind of stuff, and get too soft, that all of a sudden that the, the numbers and the outcomes and the goals aren't going to happen. But it's actually the exact opposite. And it might feel counterintuitive, but it doesn't have to be an either or. And I think sometimes there's, we live in this either or philosophy that if we start doing that, that all of a sudden the numbers are going to suffer and it's it's not true mm -hmm. yeah it's so true i know i i don't know why they the psyche is that way but i think it's just cultural you know just and it, we see it worldwide i do think like us we have that for sure we definitely have that in the us that kind of mentality um so that's why we get to work with those leaders right to kind of show them like bits give them have them take little bits and steps little small steps towards that direction that they can see the actual impact i remember on this idea of listening, the listening culture, which is one of the one of the behaviors in the book, um, I remember talking to us to someone who was like the head of HR for a moderately large size company, let's just say, and I'm talking to her, and they they have a, they have like so many great things going for them. Their culture is pretty you know foundationally strong, but they had been getting their kind of signature line, best places to work, or their website top places to work like logo, and never taking what happens. How you get those different designations is you actually survey your employees. When you survey your employees, you can choose after you survey them, whether you win or not, to buy the data from the surveys. Well, this particular company for multiple years had never bought the data. So they weren't then actually reading all of these years of comments on things they actually could improve to even take them that much higher. So they weren't perfect. Obviously, when I got to, they were already elevated above more of my clients, but they weren't perfect. There was a difference. All of a sudden you start to listen and you're like, wow, how much more, how much better can we be basically? So now we, I convinced them to listen and they're like, oh my gosh. So now we're a listening culture because that's what they say. Now I'm a listening culture because we were convinced to start looking at what people were telling us instead of just taking that tag or that, that logo and, and putting it out there and saying we're the top. Well, what makes you the top? You really can't answer that because you have never looked at your data. Yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> so data, that's above organization. There's data we give all, get all the time, even as just managers, right? We, we receive feedback. Um, and we don't take time to reflect on it. We don't, we don't like oscillate over what it means for us. Uh, we may even do a team little survey. And usually we look at those because there's a little bit, but this idea of like, what's the feedback of the data we're getting when we sit across from our team members? How in tune are we with those people who are sitting across from us who need us in that moment? Uh, so these are just some of the ways that we also listen and we listen just on a one-on-one -on -one team member level too, not just at the organizational level. There's a lot of listening that goes on inside of organizations. At least I hope there, there is. <laughs> Yeah, well, that with, that's what needs to be happening, right? Because you're missing out, yes. you're missing out on some really good data. And as you were talking about that in the listening, it, it was making me think about one of the, the first behaviors that you talked about in the book, which I, I think is really, you have to start here. It's foundational, which is about self-leadership. And mm -hmm. 
it amazes me how often there isn't time, energy, space created for the self-leadership in an intentional way. And so when you start to think about self-leadership, what does that look like for you? Well, it's interesting. I, I have like multiple prongs, but like, I'm going to speak personally right now. Yeah. Um, I, I, before the call, you know, I was talking about how there's, I wear 5,000 hats. I have four children and I'm like running like, Oh my gosh, lots and lots of things going on. Travel starting to increase. And I always make sure the one thing I do for myself every single day, well, I don't do it on Sundays. It's the only day I take a break is working out in the morning. So I get up in the morning and I have a whole process. And one thing I decided to do, which I, cause I, because I sensed that my day was going better. So the self-care part, this is one element of self-leadership is self-care. One of the things I noticed would go well is if I got up at whatever time that was, didn't work out, I would get upstairs and I'd have my full breakfast and that would be like eggs and spinach and wheat toast and like fruit. Like I'd have my full thing with my coffee and I have to start off that way and I have to have a a buffer because of what I was noticing is when I would set a meeting at 8 a.m. or 8.30, it was a little too tight. But if I start my first at nine and I go to like four, it's like back to back still, right? With the calls I'm talking about then I could still like have my day feel a little more settled than if I rushed right in at eight and I didn't have that full meal and I didn't take that quiet time in the morning. So that's, those are the kind of things, the intentionality that I insert into my day. And then at night when I'm finished with things, it's like, now I've decided this is a new thing I've done. I've decided I'm not going to do a nonfiction book right before bed because my brain will spin and spin and spin and I won't sleep. So I've decided when I'm sleeping, when I go into my room now, I'm not turning on the TV, I'm going to read fiction or like mystery or like something that's not making me go, what about that business process or whatever it is, right? So my brain is more settled and I can just sleep and not be thinking too much. And so again, that's the self-care. I would say some of the other things that are really loaded into self-leadership are this idea of being congruent with what we say we value and making sure that like if opportunities come to us that are not congruent with that, we just don't accept them or being authentic with who you are. And I mean, authentically caring, authentically kind, not authentically a jerk. So I want to be real clear about that. We overuse authenticity and we say, well, I'm just being authentic, but it doesn't mean it's okay to be authentically a jerk. So we have to reconcile it, but having the authenticity in that way and, and also like making sure that we have our own support system in place. Maybe it's a coach, maybe it's a therapist, maybe it's all those things to make sure that we can, we can get through the day. We can fill ourselves up because we can't give, we can't care for others. We don't care for ourselves. We can't give, we don't have. And it's just so important that we take some of these steps for Mm self-leadership. Yeah. So important, right? It's surrounding yourself, having the resources. I even say sometimes it's just even having a list. So you know what that go-to list is when you notice. Um, I've been talking a lot about with the emotional intelligence piece, um, especially during, during the pandemic, how often we can numb instead of being with the emotions. Right. And so it's a hard day. I'm going to have a glass of wine. Cause that's what's yeah. going to relax when really your body's saying, what I need is to go for a walk. What I need is to journal. What I need as what you were saying is some movement. So really being able to have uh, a list of, of coping mechanisms and things that you can turn to that are unique to you, right? So for you, you know, it's the exercise for some other people. Although, I mean, I would promote exercise for everyone, but what that movement looks like could be different for everyone. And, um, and, and, and I like what you said there too, around the book is, so a book could be great personal development, but it's also experimenting and sometimes yeah. little <laughs> tweaks can make it even better. Right. So I I remember that would be with one of my clients. She noticed um, with her sleep. And again, we talk, I talk a lot with leaders around rituals, morning rituals, after work rituals, transition time, evening rituals. And she recognized that because she's really into those um, mysteries, but I'd say mysteries to like, you know, the ones where it's like law and order and there's lots of kind of dark things. And she was always watching that right before bed 
And it was so interesting just shifting out that there was none of that allowed for at least an hour. And then she got to the point where it was actually there was no news, none of that kind of stuff oh, yeah. close to bed. Yeah. How it impacted her sleep, not only her sleep, but her unconscious, because what was in her head before she went to sleep, it felt so different when she woke up the next morning. Totally. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, so that's kind of where I, I discovered it on vacation where I promised myself I wasn't going to read any nonfiction. That I was going to go back to the stuff that I just loved to read. And I just read a couple books on vacation and I was like, you know what, I, this is actually what I'm going to be doing. Like I'm going to be doing this more than the other. Cause I'm already inundated with the, yeah. with the nonfiction management. But I mean, that's, who I am. Right. So I don't need to go read more of that. <laughs> yes. 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 Um, so I, I want to talk to you as well. And we, we talk about leading the whole person. Cause I think we can talk about that sometimes, but sometimes leaders might be confused around what does that actually look like? And, and I like when you talked about this chapter, when you got into acceptance, empathy, and compassion, but you also talked about microaggressions. So, uh, and I, I want to talk to you a little bit about microaggressions. Cause I think it's something that we're becoming more aware of. So something where some people weren't aware that that was going on, or some of the people who were experiencing the microaggressions couldn't necessarily verbalize that those were microaggressions. And it's great because they're starting to feel um, more able to advocate and understand and speak up when it's happening where previously they might've, it was just happening in all unconscious and they weren't even aware of those behaviors. Um, So talk to me a little bit about that piece. Oh, I mean, I think that, I, I put that in there because often what happens we, we when we're talking about psychological safety and really protecting our people um, and and making sure they feel they feel confident enough to speak the truth, speak their truth in a way that won't result in ridicule and things like that. And microaggressions, for those who don't know, are really just kind of everyday kind of verbal or nonverbal slights, whether intentional or not, that are against marginalized groups. Um, and it and it hurts, and and it, we we call it like a death by a thousand cuts. So it happens, and it can happen all the time, and it adds up. And unfortunately, in the workplace, if it adds up, let's say it's one individual that's doing it towards one other individual or a group of individuals that are have like similar characteristics, and they're doing it over and over again in short order, then it can result in, discrim- in discrimination. So even though by itself one one of these here and there is not that uh, from a legal perspective, yeah. if you do it often enough, then it can l- lead up to that. So that's just a little side note, but microaggressions happens. Like some of them are, I put some of these examples in there where it's like, you know, a black gentleman steps in an elevator with a white woman and she clutches her purse or um, if there's so many of them, it's kind of ridiculous. There's a, I, I was doing some listening sessions with uh, some diverse individuals for client. And one of them was a Latino um, Hispanic group. And, and they say, well, when you come to the counter, they'll say, do you speak English? And just assume it, or are you, you're not speaking English, speak better English to me. They'll just say things like that. Some of them are more, uh, and that's a customer who did it. Yeah. Um, or do you like, do you, oh, well, you like, are you celebrating, you're seeking, you have to be celebrating single to mile or, oh, you must like Asian rice because they're Asian. They'll say things and, they're, and they think it's joking, but like, again, you say it over and over, you take that, that beating over and over and over again, uh, then you're, then it starts to, you know, again, wear itself down on you. So yeah, there, it's important. I think, and so for leaders, you know, the key is if you have already established a trust with the person who is the um, on the tail end of that aggression, then that person might feel comfortable talking to you. Sometimes they don't want to feel like they're either being the victim or always being the one who brings things up, and so they just keep it to themselves. Sometimes there's a bystander who sees what's happening. 
and they are also kind of like taken aback by what they hear, whether they're part of the marginalized group or not, they may feel comfortable, hopefully, if you built that trust to come to you and say, this is what I heard this person say to this person, or these customers keep saying this to this coworker or this team member, and I'm not comfortable with it. How can we, how can we get past that, right? So there's a lot of ways that we can be allies and advocate, and there's, but trying to build that trust as a foundation with our team members so they feel comfortable enough to do it, whether the, on the tail end um, and the back end, the person who's feeling the aggression or the one who's the bystander of the aggression um, is really important. The other thing is also sometimes that person doesn't want to be the person who goes to the person who did the microaggression and say, wait a second, like what you just said wasn't right, but, the, but if the manager gets wind of it, it is really up to them to protect their people by trying to address it straight up and say, I don't know if you know, did you know that what you just said actually hurt so-and-so and here's why, uh, because this actually means this. What you could say if you ever wanted to go there again is this alternatively and give them the words and the language to use so that they, they won't be so harmful to their team member. Yeah, and I think even as a trying to develop the skills, it's important to be going to to go to be doing um, unconscious bias training and other things along those lines to be able to because we all have unconscious like there's nobody who doesn't have unconscious biases. So the more you recognize that's the case, the more you can start to learn and unlearn and unpack all of the ways that that's showing up. Not hopefully not being done in an intentional way, but doesn't matter. The fact remains that it's your onus to do something to be able to change it. And I I like what you said there, and it's so important. It's not the job of the person who's experiencing the microaggression. If they so choose and they want to, great. And But it's not, the onus isn't on them to have to keep on speaking up to let people know what's 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 right and what's not right and why they're doing what they're doing and why they should change what they're doing. It's the people who are doing it in the first place that needs to understand and learn how their their behavior is harmful. Absolutely, yeah. And I, it's interesting because uh, um, I have this is this is still being home during the during a relative pandemic, but I've got one kid like making some noises over there, like he's about to have a hyperventilation fest and not sure what's going on. But I'm not keep ignoring that as we're talking here. <laughs> Okay. Um, but no, you're right. I think that we hear about this idea of like, you know, black fatigue or any of fatigue based upon the, the, micro, the marginalized group you're in. And I, you know, I, although I do try to educate when I can, yeah, it could be, it could be very exhausting if it was happening a lot around you and you had to keep doing that. So I do think people should take it upon themselves to read, to educate themselves. Um, and organizations should also provide those means by providing the training, providing the books, providing the, the different webinars and things to them so they can continue to educate themselves. So individually they should and organizationally they should. Managers should also do that for their team. So I think that um, there's a lot of work to be done, period. Yes, yes, yes. And one of the things you talk about too is helping leaders to be able to bring out the best in others. And, and that's part of their role, right? Is to help mm-hmm. reach the potential in others and build the resilience, right? Because there's a muscle. Mm-hmm. I, I believe as a leader, you're helping people hit their edges because we all want to grow and be challenged. And so part of the role is being able to do that. And I know one of the things that I experienced with leaders, I'd be curious if you have the same thing, that sometimes it's like, "Mm, it's just easier for me to do it myself than to delegate because then I have to help them understand. And then it takes time and then they don't know how to do it yet. And then there's going to be some messiness. And I'm like, yeah, well, they don't learn unless you let them be in the messiness. Exactly. Absolutely. I know. I think the, um, the, the, 
the biggest thing there is this idea of like helping others. I don't, I, for me personally, I wrote, I wrote that a lot of my language that I write is about like a calling. And I feel like all of us has this calling, whether it's spiritual or not, we all have a calling to do something. And so I feel like I'm put on the planet to do exactly what I'm doing. So my goal is always to be searching inside of other people, finding like those glimmers of, of greatness in them and pulling that out. And every leader, I mean, imagine being on the, on the other side of that on the other side of the relationship where someone is always pouring themselves into you, pulling out all they can from you, because in the end you get more inside the team. Like they do more in the team. They achieve more, the more they feel like you are digging deep with them. You're allowing them to stretch, stretching, like you said, beyond the edges. And if, if you're doing that for them, they're like, wow, like I, this is not a place I'm going to ever, I mean, unless they don't like to be that person where they don't want to grow. You know, obviously you don't want them to grow. You don't want them to go to the place where they absolutely don't want to go. But if there's a place where they're not even sure they can go and you take them there and they achieve things, wow, you'd probably want to keep staying in that place because now this person just helped you understand what your calling is. Right? Yeah. And, and I like you went, I like that you went there for a second. So I'd love to talk a little bit about that for you because you kind of said kind of side note, and I know that, and I'm doing the work that I'm called to do, but some people don't necessarily haven't taken the time and space. So um, I'd love if you could share with the audience, what did that look like for you? How did you start to get clearer on what your calling is and, and connecting to your why? Yeah. I mean, I think it really starts with the I mean, way, way back in my background, knowing that I had to, I wanted to be somebody who would be the voice for the voiceless, somebody who would, who wanted to, you know, show respect for others and always make people feel important. But like more recently, it was that merger, you know, again, that I had as probably, I don't know, it was several years ago and I was in the middle of a merger and there were all these people that were really not trusting uh, one another because the titles look painfully similar to the titles of the other company, new employees were coming in. Who is that person? What are they doing? Are they are going to be laid off? It's a merger. So we already know, you know layoffs going to happen or something. Um, and so people were really fearful and they were coming to me. Different people would come to me whether I was on their team, they were my team or not, you know, direct team. And would just always ask me like, what's going on? Like our leaders aren't talking. Like they're not saying it, what's happening. They would always ask looking for signs of like what's happening. So communication was not taking place. And I said, um, I would try to give them feedback. I would try to coach them on what they could do to get more from their leader. Uh, and at some point I, I just got drugged down and I, emotionally drug down. And I went to head of HR and I said, listen, we've got to do something about all of this, like the disengagement, the mistrust. And, and she said, you know what, you're right. We should go do something about that. You go, should go do something about that. And I was like, well, wait, I'm leading customer experience at the time. So why should I be the one going to do that? Um, but it kind of made sense. Like, as I thought about it, because I was the person who was always trying to uplift other people, whether they were on my team or not, always just kind of showing a lot of appreciation for people, whether on my team or not. And so I did that. I just created the council, brought people in from, they were in the Denver office, but they represented the different companies that, cause they were just bringing people to different offices that even there were different companies coming into different offices. There were four or five offices around the world. Um, so I brought the ones that were together who already showed some receptivity to the issue and brought them to the table. We started to figure out how we could break down kind of silos, break down some of the walls and this trust. We were doing scavenger hunts and all kinds of cool things to like help people uncover who the other was. And, and we started to see a change in pretty quick order within like a six month period. But the merger, you know, people weren't listening in the organization. Leaders really weren't listening, weren't paying attention and the merger didn't go so well. And I, but I noticed right in that moment, I was just like, I'm sitting in the middle of this and I'm kind of like, standing outside of my own shoes, like looking around going, no one actually asked them, like no one communicated with them. No one asked them what their opinion was. No one gave them input to what the process would be. They just expected them to go along. And in the regard, in that regard, they created all this frustration and fear. Yeah. 
And I knew I had to be that person. So that's where my calling really boiled up to at that point. point, It was like all these things over the years and then boom, this one, this one merger was like, this is, it's pretty obvious now that I need to do this. So the work we do on the listening side is really the whole focus about creating those cultures of listening. We think listening is the foundation for like all other things we want in our culture and our organizations. Yes. Yes. I love that. Um, and, and it, what, what it makes me think of as you're talking about that, Heather, and I, I talk a lot about this on the show is, and I know you do as well, that when it comes to leading with your heart, sometimes that means we love our head and it's logical and it does so many amazing things for us, but then other times we need to drop, drop down to our hearts and create space to be able to hear, to listen, to, um, be able to get in touch with our values and our intuition and our internal compass. What does that look like for you? How do you drop drop down into your heart and hear that wisdom that's there for you? Mm, I, I think uh, because my the main strength I lead with is empathy. I usually drop down to my heart by paying attention to the other person. So because what'll happen is I'll be all in my head, full on marching forward. It's just who I am. I'm a driver. I'm driving, driving, driving. But then the thing that helps me so much is that the fact that I lead with empathy. So I'm paying so much more attention to the people and like what they're saying or what they're not saying and their body language and what just all of those little things that I know take a lot to decipher and take a lot of energy as well to do. Um, it is the way that I lead. Um, it's the way I lead my clients. It's the way I lead my team members. It's the way I lead myself. It's just always trying to be in tune with um, the emotional side of what's happening. So I might be driving, 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 and then there's silence on the other end. Yeah. And I have pay attention to that. And I'm like, oh, shoot driving too hard or, oh shoot, I didn't stop to listen to them. And so it it allows me to stop and and to kind of slow down in that regard. Okay. I'm going to ask you a question that you love to ask your guests, which is, um, tell me about a mistake that you learned from. So so a a time that there was something that was, Mm. wow, I didn't expect that. I didn't think it was going to look like that. But when you look back, you're like, you know what, that was probably really good. It got you to a place where you were learning something about yourself or the people around you. Um, So what's a mistake that you've learned Mm. from? Yeah, I would say one of them uh, is the fact that I had gone through before I was after I was at the company I just described for a couple of years before I went on and started had my business full time and was what I'm doing now. I was working for a company, it's an organization actually, and there were two reorganizations. There was I was impacted by both. Uh, my role change, I my leadership capacity change, everything changed in the first time and in the second time. I kind of felt like I was stuck, but I didn't quite realize how stuck I was. So the the person who was like, let's say the CEO of the organization asked me to be kind of a culture ambassador and go around to all the people who have been impacted by this, these reorganizations. And um, I should have paused and reflected on how stuck I really was and either let them know I couldn't take it on. I didn't have it in me or really just be courageous enough to come forward and say, listen, like I am hurting. I am stuck. Both of these things happen. You didn't ask me my opinion. You didn't counsel me, but you want me to go do this thing here, which is kind of a big deal. I didn't do that. And so my re- I regret not having the maturity in that moment um, to, to kind of go to him. So like I said, take either path, say, sorry. I know I might be like, seem like the natural choice. Every place I go, I seem like the natural culture ambassador choice. But in this moment, I am too stuck and I can't quite get there. Or here's why I can't get there. And I really need you to hear me. And this is what I need from you in order for me to get there. I didn't do that. I just kind of went there, uh, showed up with too much um, empathy, like too much. I connected with the people too much. 
And then it ended up getting back that like, maybe I was showing too much connection to their pain instead of kind of distancing a little bit from that as I was going around and keeping the positivity. So again, it's something that I reflected on since that time and realized that was, you know, I, there were alternative paths I should have taken. And now I know what to take next time. Yeah. And I think it's something to be aware of, right? Because people who are empaths and naturally do that, there can sometimes, uh, you can almost take too much on. So there's this balance of creating some spaciousness so that you're there absolutely. And you see, and you ex- know what they're experiencing, but you're not taking it on as your own because it can take a lot out of you if that's happening. Yeah. I mean, and even, even that part wasn't the issue. The issue was, cause I've gotten really good at that part of that, but it's taken me 40 something years to get to the point where I'm better at that part. Cause for yeah. many years I would do exactly that. I'd be, if someone was mad at their coworker, I'd get like so mad when they're telling me about the story. Like I was just like, and now um, the issue with the, what, what the problem was with the interactions was the fact that I didn't realize I was stuck in it because I'd been impacted two times and I never voiced my, I never used my own voice, which I'm always talking about voice and how powerful it is. I never really truly used it in a way that was productive to, to land on a place that when I would go out to these people, my own personal emotions, not theirs, my own personal emotions were getting in the way versus if I didn't have the emotional feel of it and I had already gotten rid of my baggage. When I went to them, I am pretty good now of keeping the distance, but because I hadn't done it. Um, and then I went to them with all their emotion. Now yeah. it was like, pow, pow. Yeah. Not you. That's an important distinction. And what do you think you needed? Do you think you needed just time to reflect? Do you think it was about you having a conversation that you needed to have that you were a bit afraid to have? What do you think was the barrier? Yeah, I think it was definitely not having that, having the conversation of, not uh, the lack of not having that conversation. I think it was like, I wanted to keep up the facade or like this, my, the culture person, the culture person was like, yes, I can do this. Of course I can be the ambassador. I wanted to keep that up again, not, not allowing myself like kind of my own time to process it. And then also to my own ability to say, actually, I'm not feeling so great about it. I'm actually not so happy. Go lucky about it. Yeah. And you're allowed so. to feel that way. Exactly. Yeah. But I didn't do it. I didn't allow it. And then, so then I didn't bring it forward. And then when it finally came out, I probably came out more passive aggressive versus again, a more mature concept, more mature way to go about it. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so I'm encouraging everybody who's listening to, to get your book. Um, Cause we're going to talk about in the book, more of this in a lot of different detail, but I always like to give my guests an opportunity to leave the audience with a final thought, what shows up for you. I would say like in every interaction you have with someone, how do you make them feel? And if you, if you were to go like, go be a fly on the wall and hear how they would talk about you in that interaction, how might they respond about how you let them, made them feel? And are you considering that? And are you asking that? And are you corralling those questions and corralling those insights from people in a way that makes them feel safe when they give it to you. And then what do you do about it? So I would say that would be the final thoughts there. Yeah. So important. Very, very poignant. Sometimes it's, it's, it sounds simple, but it's not right. Cause it requires mm-hmm. to like, whoo, really pause and be willing to hear what the feedback is too, to be, to step into and be with the feedback. Yes. Yes. And, and sit in, like you said before, not numbing yourself to say, I'm getting the feedback and I'm angry. I'm getting the feedback and I'm sad, like whatever that is, like we are human and we have to allow ourselves those emotions and the time to process. Yes. Heather, where can people learn more about your work? 
Um, I would say um, if you go to caringleadership.co, that would be one place, or, and or you can go to employeefanatics.com, and that's F-A-N-A-T-I-X. And then, of course, LinkedIn. Like a, Those are probably the three biggest places you'd, you'd be able to find me. Excellent. <laughs> and we will have all of that in the show notes. Heather, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful, as always, my dear. Thank you. Can't wait till there's in-person hugs. Soon, soon. <laughs> I know, I know. Thanks, everyone. Have a wonderful day. Please remember that meaningful change requires space and grace. Practice self-compassion and become the ripple. As you transform yourself, you transform your workplace and the people around you.